Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. To another episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I am Dr. G. And it's the history of Rome from the founding of the city. <laughs> so let's recap where we were up to last time, Dr. G. So last episode, we talked about a teensy bit of 439 as far as I'm concerned, but it was mostly 438. And apart from the Malleus schmozzle that we were clearing up, a murder most foul, it would seem, of an equestrian who's just trying to make it rain grain. Mm-hmm. We Ends had... up in the pool of treachery. That's right. We had instead a switch from domestic problems to foreign problems. Yeah, there's nothing like an Etruscan king to mm. get under your skin. Indeed. So we had the introduction of Lars Tolumnius, Etruscan king. Or they. Yes. Apparently. He comes into our orbit because... Basically, the Romans had established a colony at a place called Fidene, and they had decided to switch their allegiance from the Romans to the city of A, which is Etruscan, hence the involvement of an Etruscan king. Mm. Mm. And when the Romans sent four ambassadors to be, why well, got to be that way? <laughs> why are you leaving us? Yeah. <laughs> their response was apparently to cut their heads off, which may have been on the orders of Lars or he might have actually been doing something else, trying to multitask, and ended up in a very messy situation. Also, it's a bit of a mess, if you think about it, because these are Roman historians trying to tell us what's mm. going on with Fidene, and yes. it seems like they can't credit Fidene with coming up with this idea for themselves. Ooh, ouch. Mm. <laughs> and Livy certainly is on the side of Tolumnius ordering the murder or at least making it seem like he was ordering the murder because he wanted Fidene to be committed to this revolt that they were in. Yeah. Yeah. Man on the ground. Yeah. So we ended up with four ambassadors who lost their heads, but won some statues in the city of Rome. Headless statues? (laughs) I didn't want to say. (laughs) I didn't mention that one of them was called Ichabod. Anyway, um, so that was really where we were up to with 438, which means, Dr. G, that it's time to travel into 437 BC. For 37 BCE and Dionysus of Halicarnassus, my major source, yes. cuts back in partway through this year. Oh, that's exciting. Mm. Indeed. 
Yes. I'll have some things to tell you. Yeah. But let us start with the multitude of characters. This yeah. is like a cast of thousands. It is, yeah. 437 we, seems to be quite the year to be a Roman. <laughs> it is. If yeah. you're going to get famous and have a bit part in Roman history, it might be in this year. Mm. We have consuls. A return to the consulship, everybody. Um, Marcus Giganius, son of Marcus, grandson of we don't know who, uh, Masserinus, and... Lucius Sergius, <laughs> son of Gaius, grandson of Gaius, Fidinas. Mm. Mm. I think not. A patrician. Yes. So, and we also have, and this is perhaps a foreshadowing of things to come in this year, a mm. Suffolk consul mm. as well. Indeed. And you usually only get those when you have to replace one of the other consuls yes. for some reason. Yeah. You have to suffer the suffect. Mm. Mm. And this is Marcus Valerius, ah. son of Marcus, grandson of Manius. Lactuca or Lactucinus, which sounds maybe more more Latin. Yeah, uh, Maximus. So it sounds like it's with breastfeeding. <laughs> handful of a name, yeah. handful of a man. <laughs> and then we also have a dictator. So soon, <laughs> so soon, you say? Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, we've entered the uh, era of dictators, mm. um, dear listeners. So yeah. be on the lookout. Mamercus Aemilius. Son of Marcus, grandson of we don't know who, Mamus. This is the one that I really struggled with last time. Mam- so, wait, Mam- wait. So, it's Mamercus, Amelius, Mamocinus, or Mamocinus? Okay. Yes, he was one of the military okay. tribunes yeah. with consular power from the previous year. Oh, God, I wish the Romans wouldn't have such. <laughs> Tongue twister names. <laughs> it's not good for the English. We no. needed to be raised on a romance language. But there is the master of the horse to accompany the dictator. Of course, of course. And that is the young Cincinnatus. <sighs> famous so the- in all the wrong ways. And yeah. now he's back on the scene. Yeah. So he also was from the previous year, if I remember correctly. Mm, one yeah. of the military tribunes with consular power. Yeah. yeah. So two buddies yeah. hooking up again for another year of fun together. And that's after his daddy, as in Cincinnatus' daddy, had mm. just been dictated himself. Maybe, yes. maybe not. <laughs> yeah, so now he's stepping through the ranks. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We've also got a couple of legates mentioned. Mm. Marcus Fabius Vibulanus. Ooh, a Fabian. Yeah, he was previously consul in 442, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. quite recently. Yeah. And who we think is Titus Quintius Capitolinus Barbatus. Oh, for heaven's sake. He's back! Will that man ever <laughs> retire? No. <laughs> and also, somebody known as the Tribune of the Soldiers, in my account. Yes. And we'll see how this goes for him. Yes. But hold on to your horses. This is the name out of all of that list, the one to remember. Aulus Cornelius Cossus? Yeah, yeah. That's what I've got to. Yeah. A mm. patrician. And... There's going to be some interesting things going on with old Cossus, so yep. keep your ears peeled. Oh my goodness. So clearly we're in for quite a year if we've got this many magistrates on our cards. <laughs> it sounds like a Roman disaster already. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What is going on? <laughs> I know, I know. Basically, we've got this situation, right, where war is clearly on the horizon because you can't just ignore the fact that four of your ambassadors just had their heads cut off. It is awkward, but to ignore it would make it worse. Yeah, you can't uh, can't ignore the murder. So, fortunately, there is no conflict over the issue of the levy because the plebeians <laughs> and the tribunes are sensible enough this time around, Dr. G, to know that Rome needs to come together. 
They need to unite because that's the only way they're going to be able to deal with the Etruscans. Ah, yes, because Lars Tolumnius is mm. still on the scene. So because obviously Rome's in a bit of a difficult situation, no surprises, the plebeians and the tribunes don't raise any objections to consuls being elected this time around because they understand that unity is important in this moment here. And so we have, as we mentioned before, Marcus Gaganius Macerinus and Lucius Sergius Fidinas. Now, Livy mentions here, and we are going to come back to this guy's name, that he thinks he got this name because of the war that he was fighting. So obviously fighting to get back the colony of Fidinay to restore things to how they should be in the Roman mindset. And he got this name apparently because he was the first man to fight a successful battle on this side of the Anio against Lars Tolumnius. However, he does highlight that this was not a battle that was easily won. So a lot of the Romans are obviously pretty sad because so many people died in this battle. And therefore, even though they did win, it was a bit of a tricky situation. Rome's not in exactly the place it wants to be. And so the Senate end up deciding that they want to appoint a dictator, Mimercus Amelius. And he chooses as his master of the horse, another guy who sprung up from the year that we were just talking about, who'd been a military tribune with consular authority, none other than Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus, or Cincinnatus Jr., who is described as being a young man worthy of his father, and therefore I have conceived an instantaneous dislike to him. Mm. Yeah, anyway, so the consuls, of course, help out here. They decide that they're going to, you know, levy the troops. And they make sure that they include some veteran centurions amongst the number. Guess they think they're going to be facing quite the fight here, which Mm. is a fair call. The Etruscans are pretty powerful at this point in time. Yep. So, dictator Mamercus orders... Titus Quintius Capitolinus and Marcus Fabius Bibulanus to be his lieutenants. And that's where they come into our story. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, so they're going to be serving underneath him. And, of course, they're from pretty elite clans. They've got the connections. There's some pedigree there. Fabulous Fabians, you know. (laughs) Hard to resist a fabulous Fabian. Exactly, yes. So, you know, got a bit of pedigree (laughs) going on here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what Livy points out here is that when the right man is chosen to be dictator of Rome. And when that position, so high and mighty, is united with that correct man, well, there's no one that can stand in Rome's way. That's just the way it works. The position is elite. The man is elite. (laughs) Such a marriage in heaven. Uh (laughs) So, anyway, that's just, I think, a bit of a hint about where this is all going, about how it's all going to go for Rome, but, you know. Livy's got his narrative knickers in a twist. Yeah, exactly. So, as a result, the Romans carry all before them, Dr. G. They're able to push the enemy right out of their territory, across the Anio River. Mm-hmm. The enemy, the Etruscans, they end up withdrawing into their camp, and they set themselves up on the hills between Fidine and the Anio River. And they are not going to come down into the plains until the forces of the Philiscans come to help them. Then the Etruscans themselves set up camp before the walls of Fidene. The Roman dictator retires to his camp, which was also obviously in the area, to prepare for battle. Now, this is where, in the enemy camp, there is a little bit of problems. Because not everyone is convinced about what the next move should be. 
These Feliscans are kind of restless Mm -hmm. because they're away from their home territory and they're feeling, you know, pretty confident, okay, pretty pretty ready for things. They're definitely keen to, you know, get right back into things here. But the people of Vey and Fidene, they want to take a slower approach, okay? They Mm. think, you know what, time might be on our side here, okay? So King Columnius thinks, you know what, I agree with my fellow people here. I think that slow and steady might win the race here against the Romans, okay? I mean, they're clearly raring to go, okay? (laughs) We wouldn't want to give them the satisfaction. (laughs) Yeah. However, I think he feels a bit emasculated because he's got these Feliscans. Feliscians? (laughs) Such a weird name for people. (laughs) And I think he feels like it'd be embarrassing for him not to just go right into it, not to launch straight ahead. Lars, 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 this is how you lose. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, so he, and he didn't want to obviously lose their faith. He doesn't want them to go back home and be like, you know what, if you're not going to use us, we're just going to go back home. Because they clearly want to go back home. <laughs> They're not enjoying this little holiday of theirs. So he decides he is going to fight the very next day. Mm-hmm. Now, meanwhile, the Romans and their dictator are feeling very positive because somehow they seem to know that there's some hesitation amongst the enemy about what it is that they're going to be doing. So the Romans start threatening that they're going to attack the camp, that they're going to attack the city of Fidne if the enemy doesn't enter battle. So they're going to bring the battle to them if they are like reluctant to fight or something like that. Romans posturing. So the armies face out. The armies march out and they are facing off against each other. Now, they has sent across some extra men and they've dispatched a particular party across the mountains to attack the Roman camp during the fighting. Clever. Mm. Yeah. Because presumably then the Romans, you know, attention would be diverted and they'd have to split their forces to defend their camp. Mm -hmm. So basically... Classic move. Yeah. What we've got, therefore, (laughs) is... The enemy troops, we've got they on the right wing. We've got the Falskians, Faliscans, <laughs> Faliscans on the left wing. And we've got the people from Fidene right in the centre. Our dictator, Mamercus, Mamercus, <laughs> he decides that he's going to advance on the right and take on the Faliscans. Capitolinus is going to be sent against the people of they. On the left. Okay, so one of the senior legates. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And then we have Master of the Horse, Cincinnatus, son of the junior. famous. Yeah, Cincinnatus <laughs> Junior. Yeah, he's going to be attacking the people from Fidney right in the center. All right. All right. So this is the scene. Everything falls quiet. The Etruscans are holding back, seemingly not wanting to fight unless their hand is forced. The dictator is looking back towards the citadel in Rome. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because the augurs had assured him that they would send a signal. I was going to say, there has to be a sign of birds at this point, doesn't there? (laughs) Letting him know that everything was looking good according to the heavens Mm -hmm. and that he could therefore embark on the fight. And sure enough... The signal is given, and the dictator sends his cavalry right into action, Mm -hmm. followed by the infantry. Mm. Yes. Now, I'm going to stop right here, Dr. G, (laughs) even though it's a very enigmatic moment. (laughs) It's a tense moment. It is, because 
this is where I have to start flagging some of the problems with this account that we're going through. <laughs> so mm. basically, this conflict with Fidene is going to last on and off for over a decade, according to our sources, right? Okay. Yeah. Like, yes, things are going to get settled, but then they're going to flare up again. Mm -hmm. And there is definitely some confusion about which order the events really happened in Mm -hmm. and what definitely happened when. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. This is the first of those moments which has raised the little hairs on the back of the necks of scholars because they're like, that doesn't seem possible that you could see the citadel of Rome, maybe from the position that you're supposedly in. Yeah, like I mean, we know where yeah. the Anio River is, yes. and we know where Fadine is. Yeah, you could reasonably send somebody out there to go and have a look. See, mm. I mean, the hillscape of Rome is not the same today as it was then. Mm. Um, some of those hills have had the tops knocked off them. Yeah, so it could look. It could be one of those things, but this is where academics are like, yeah, I'm not buying it. Because you see, there's going to be another battle in 426, fairly much the same players. You know, we've got Rome and Fidene and all that kind of stuff going on. And again, we have the story told that a Roman commander didn't start fighting until he received a signal. Oh, yeah, but, like, I'll level with you. This is a very appropriate way for Romans to go about battles. Mm. I don't think, as a scholar... That's not the point where I'd have the question. I think it's when you take it in consideration with the other things I'm going to flag. Yeah. It's like a potential, like, did it happen exactly like this at this moment? But waiting for a sign for, like, whether it's appropriate to go into battle or appropriate to go into war, that's all totally above board as far as, like, the Romans are concerned. No, I think it's more specifically the idea that... The dictator at this point in time would have been able to turn over his shoulder, glance over his shoulder, <laughs> and look at the citadel of Rome and be like, like "Aha, yes, <laughs> yeah." I think there's just a little bit of like this. This is the same story that's told later on. Yeah, you know, when the Romans are fighting the same people. Yeah, is there the some same, confusion here? The same story told ten years apart, and yes. I have to say this builds in really nicely with what we've already flagged in the previous episode, which is we've got some analytic disparity about when things are happening and when people are holding the consulship and when people are dictators in this period. And there is about a slippage of about 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. So are we dealing with a story that gets retold twice or are we dealing with what is the same story essentially? And we've lost some years and actually the analytic historians don't know yes. what happened for some of these and they've gotten caught up in their numbers and they've counted things incorrectly, yeah. which is highly likely. Yeah. And it's now at this point where some of their miscalculations are starting to play out and yeah. they're having to fill in the gaps with some stuff. But anyway, to resume the battle. So the Etruscans, obviously, they're having to fight now because the Romans have been given the signal they're launching in. So the best fighting on their side is apparently coming from their cavalry particularly from Lars Delumnius, who's quite a heroic, brave king type. So he's kind of leading the charge. He's like running all about, trying to scare the Romans, being all fierce, like, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> and the Romans are like, huh, yeah. huh, <laughs> stop. You see that? Oh my goodness. <gasps> stop jumping around like that. You made me drop my sword. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hate it. I hate fighting the Etruscans for this very reason. <laughs> 
Now, this is where the guy that you flagged earlier comes into his own, Dr. G. Mm. On the Roman side, we have, as one of the tribunes of the soldiers, one Aulus Cornelius Cossus. He is very, very handsome. Oh, my sources don't mention that. Oh, well, you're missing out. I've got quite the visual here. (laughs) (laughs) Very handsome, you say. Well, that puts things in a whole new light. I know. So he's very, very handsome. He's also courageous and Mm. strong. I mean, when you expect nothing less. Now, he's very proud of his family name, Cornelia, you know. Uh, But he wants to make sure that he makes it even more famous than when he received it at birth. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Oh, yes. It is every patrician's duty to increase the family reputation. Yeah. So, good for all of us. Exactly, yes. So, he can see that one of the big issues that the Romans are facing is the Etruscan king. Tolumnius is causing chaos on the battlefield. So he decides, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to take this guy down myself. And so he decides to charge at him, armed only with his... Well, not armed only with his spear, but with his spear ready. And he strikes Lars right off his horse. And then he jumps off his horse with his spear and violently stabs him. So violent that Lars is pinned to the earth with this spear. Oh. Yeah. And so then he takes... All the spoils from the body. So this would be his weapons, you know, his armor, all of that kind of stuff. His shield. Underpants. (laughs) Very important. (laughs) And then he chops off the head of Lars Tolumnius and puts it on his spear. I presume he took the spear out of the body so it was no longer (laughs) pinned to the earth at this point in time. And he uses it to terrify the Etruscans. And as a result... This contributes greatly to the Romans being able to take down the Etruscan cavalry. Oh, I have a slightly different version of events. Look, I've no doubt that you do, (laughs) because I am also going to raise questions about the way that this is all going down, but not right now. (laughs) Let me give you the comparison scene. Dionysius of Halicarnassus doesn't give us much, but he gives us some things. Okay. So this is uh, Roman Antiquities 12.5. Yeah. And so we have, you know, Aulus Cornelius. He's not described as being incredibly handsome, which is a real shame. So I want to change the whole visual for me. Mm. But he does spur his horse against uh, Tolumnius. Mm-hmm. So Lars Tolumnius seems to be, as, as any great commander, on a horse. Totally. And so is Aulus Cornelius. And when Tolumnius gets to Lars, he drives his spear through the breast of the horse. Oh, so come on. Yeah, so Lars Tolumnius's horse gets speared, first yep. of all, which forces the horse to rear up and throw the rider off. So yep. Lars Tolumnius ends up like flat on his back on the ground. His horse is in great pain. Yeah. And then Cornelius turns and drives the point of his spear through the shield Ooh. and through the breastplate wow. of Tolumnius into his side. So through two layers of defense. Wow. And... While uh, Tolumnius is trying to raise himself up after like having this spear stabbed through his shield and his breastplate and his side, yeah. what Cornelius does is he takes his sword mm-hmm. and pushes it through Tolumnius's groin. Oh, what? And that is how he slays the king of the Etruscans. Oh my god. Brutal. Yes. Then he strips off his spoils. Yeah. Um, so all of the armor, the underpants, everything. Um, <laughs> and then he defends 
the spot. So nobody else can take those spoils from him or right. to take him down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was in close quarters and he'd gone into like, you know, yeah. the Etruscan line to get there. And it was that moment. This becomes a huge moment. Yes, definitely. So yeah. in terms of uh, moments in Roman history, yeah. as horrific as this is, regardless of how either source describes it, this guy become he does increase the fame of his family. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And the reason why he has mm. is because he joins the really illustrious ranks, of which there is only currently one at this point in time, yep. of a Roman who, in hand-to-hand combat, defeats the enemy commander. I was going to say, we don't often see this kind of squaring off of the leader you know, leader versus leader or, or anyone versus the leader. It's, yeah, it's not super common. It's not super common. Yeah. There are only three examples. So Plutarch, um, in his Life of Romulus, gives us all three examples. Well, nice. Romulus, surprise, uh, surprise, uh, is the first. He slays Akron of the Canisians. Mm. Um, so that was a long time ago yeah. um, in the founding of the of the city and so forth. But the next person is Aulus Cornelius Cossus. Mm. Right now, in what, 437 yeah. BCE, for killing Lars Tolumnius. Right. And then it's we don't see this again until 222 BCE. Wow. So for people listening in, one to watch on the horizon, coming up soon, Definitely. in about 15 years' time, <laughs> Claudius Marcellus overpowers the king of the Gauls, known as Virodomarus, mm. and sometimes referred to as Britomartus. Okay. And these are the three examples of all time. Wow. Okay. That's, that's it. I knew it was a big deal, but I hadn't actually looked at the numbers. Yeah. And no. so, and Claudius Marcellus is like years in the future. And so at this point, Cornelius Cossus is equal to Romulus. Who we're pretty sure is mythical. (laughs) (laughs) But who is like, you know, a legendary figure in Roman history. And and to liken yourself to Romulus through this act is an incredible way to enhance your family's reputation and your own. Absolutely. What a moment. So this turns the tide of the battle for the Romans. The dictator, our friend, Menelikius, he's able to come along, chase after the fleeing enemy all the way to their camp where he massacres anybody that's managed to make it that far. However, Livy does note that because the Romans are obviously fighting in the territory of the enemy here, and the people of Fidene obviously have pretty good knowledge of like the local area, and so quite a few of them are able to make a getaway into the mountains, Cossus comes back in here. He's able to cross the Tiber with his cavalry, being like, yeah, <laughs> collecting all this bootay. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Check out these spoils. Yeah. There is, of course, also a fight happening now at the Roman camp because Lars Tolumnius, before his rather sad death, had sent this diversionary party. So we've got Fabius Vibulanus defending the camp. Luckily, he was there with the reserves, or the triarii, who were kept, basically kept back until absolutely necessary in this battle. You know, they, they didn't want to use them unless they were in a real crisis point. And they waited until the enemy was distracted, and then they attacked one. Um, they basically got, like, out of one of the main gates of the Roman camp and managed to secure a victory for themselves. So, ah. Yeah. Pretty good. So this is getting back to this 
issue of like timing with this kind of thing. Yes. This idea that Fadine is defeated mm. and it is problematic, I suppose, if it happens now, because we're mm. certainly going to see them sort of revive and come back. Mm. Um, and our sources tend to suggest that there is a point where they are completely destroyed. Yeah. And this doesn't appear to be that time. Yeah. And, and yet we do get some conflation of this point yeah. with that point in the yes. future. Yeah, definitely. Because we... There's discussion of um, the spoils being won from Lars to Lemnius. Yeah. So Cossus takes these back, gets a triumph, dedicates them to the temple of Jupiter Feratrius, mm -hmm. which is the, the special place yeah. for that kind of thing. And in the same instance, in this source that I've got here, which is Florus. Yes. So this is a writer from like the early first century... Uh, late 1st, early 2nd century CE. Yeah. So, I mean, reasonably far away from things. Talks about how, in the end, Fadine is defeated, not through this kind of battle, yeah. but through a whole broader series of strategic underground mines and traps and things. Okay. So, yeah. th th so that might be one of those things. Yeah, but it's yeah. all bundled up together. Like, yeah. like these things had all sort of like happened around about the same time. Which is kind of not useful when we're thinking about early Roman Republican history because we're yes. like we, we kind of want to know when things actually did happen, no, of not course. bundling ten years together in one and being like, well, you know, four twenty six is a bit like four thirty seven, <laughs> so uh, it should be right. Yeah, let's just push them together. Yeah, no, that's just it. This obviously is seen as one of those big moments for Rome because the, the Senate decreed and the people agree with the Senate that that all of this is triumph worthy. Mm -hmm. but Cossus is the one that definitely gets, I think, most of the attention. <laughs> Unfortunately for Mamurcus, he doesn't get quite the attention that you might think, given that he's the dictator in charge oh, of this whole campaign. I'd be annoyed if I was the dictator yeah. right now. Like, I mean, you know, he still gets the accolades, I suppose. But yeah, Cossus is definitely getting the, the most attention. I particularly like this detail that apparently the soldiers under him saying rude verses about him, comparing him to Romulus because of the whole... <laughs> rude verses. <laughs> yeah, I like that detail. Yeah, because of the whole spoiler opima thing, um, which, as you say, he does dedicate to the temple of Jupiter Feratrius. And the people then request that the dictator give Jupiter on the capital a golden chaplet, which was to be a pound in weight from the public treasury. Wow. To wrap up events here. All right. Yeah, exactly. Fancy. I know. So, yeah, there's all that kind of stuff going down. But this whole moment of Roman conquest over Fidene, as you say, it just becomes significant later on. It's something that the Romans obviously want to remember, but their memories seem to be a bit hazy. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. And there's obviously, like, the, the event of Tolumnius being killed in this way yeah. by Cossus and that being positioned as such a rare event yes. that happens. Yeah. That sort of means that they have to remember this. There's no way that they couldn't. And certainly, yeah, it gets a bit confusing, though. So I've also got Eutropius, who's a source from the 4th century CE. Wow, yeah, that is, that is getting on. That is <laughs> yeah, getting on. and so, I mean... For hundreds of years after these events, people are still talking about them. Yeah. And Eutropius talks about how the Fidentes, they rebel against Rome and, you know, Vey is on their side and Tolumnius gives them assistance. Yeah. And they are defeated 
by Marcus Aemilius the Dictator. Yeah. And so this puts us in a different sort of time frame as well. Yes. And but Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus, Cincinnatus Jr., is named as Master of the Horse. So there's like this sort of conflation of details from one year with another year. This is not the year that a Marcus Aemilius is dictator, but we are in a period where we're going to see a lot of dictators, so yeah, it's going to come up, I'm sure. No, and this is, this is exactly it, because we've got this conflict flaring up again in 428, 427, and as you say, the names of the people who are dictator and Master of the Horse... Um, sorry, the names of the people who are dictated are similar, so we've got that Amelia's character again. And then we've got Cossus in some accounts named as Master of the Horse. Ah, uh, yes. And yeah. Cossus, so the thing with Cossus is, and I've got a whole other section on this. Mm. So other sources that deal with this, we've got Propertius, mm-hmm. uh, book four, poem 10, mm-hmm. uh, on the origins of Ferretrian Jupiter, talks yeah. about the three examples. Mm-hmm. So Cossus is talked about in there. And he actually mentions that the gods aided the Latin hands. So mm. Cossus's hands are being sort of helped by the divine forces. And Tolumnus's severed head washed Roman horses in blood. Wow. Oh. <laughs> yes. oh. Yeah. Thanks, Propertius. Yeah. And then we've got Sextus Aurelius Victor. And so a really late source again talks about Cincinnatus Jr. as the dictator Mm. and Cornelius Cossus as the master of the horse. Mm -hmm. And these two will end up in this situation, we think, a little bit further on. So this is, again, jumping. So there are moments where Cossus, we're not sure what position he held when he engaged in this moment. Yeah. But it would make sense that he was perhaps higher up in command than just a, a guy um, in the battle absolutely, um, yeah. with some sort of tribuneship. Um, so perhaps holding a higher position of more distinction would make a greater moment of glory for this defeat. Yeah. But this means that the war with Lars is taking a whole sort of 10 years to play out rather well, than like a single year, which, yeah. And this is one of the things that's been pointed out by uh, one of the academics that I read. He commented that Tolumnius's death in this case, is taking place in the first year of what will be an on and off again conflict. And he kind of asked the question of, well, does it entirely make sense that him dying in this year would add up? Potentially, him actually dying in the final year would make sense because then they would have no reason potentially to continue to back up Fidene in their revolt against Rome. So perhaps the death of Tolumnius actually was something that took place much later. Um, it may be in like, you know, 426 or something like that when we're dealing with this flare-up of the conflict again. And that the confusion might arise, obviously, from the name. So not only the people that we've already highlighted, but the fact that we do have this guy um, with the surname Fidinus mentioned mm. in connection with the conflict. And so this apparently is that um, the first time that Sergius is, is a consul... And there is a tribe of the Sergia near Fidene. Oh, it might just be a family connection. So it might be a family connection and, and you know, certainly a, a, common, um, a common additional name that they used in this early period of the, the Sergia clan is that they did use this, this surname Fidena. So potentially him being a magistrate in this year meant that they wanted to put some of the details of the conflict 
in this year, mm, potentially, yeah, or, potentially, or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And also there's that Roman tendency to minimise enemies to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. And do you really want to put it out there that this really took 10 years uh, to put to, it down? To put yeah. it down. Yeah. And it's like, it's a bit problematic. It doesn't look good for Rome to be in a conflict for that long. Not in this period, but it would make sense for it to be true. Yeah. Um, because we can see that Rome is certainly not preeminent. Uh, <laughs> no. And, and there might have also been some confusion about terminology. So apparently when we get to 426 and we're getting to the tail end here, Livy makes a reference to the Roman classis fighting in the battle. Now, some people took this uh, to mean that he was referring to the fleet and therefore that this somehow must have meant that there were ships involved in the fighting, maybe on the Tiber, fighting in this war against Fidene. But what Forsyth has pointed out is that classis must have just meant the Roman military levy. You know, as we've talked about, there is this distinction between these two groups, the classes and the infra-classem, so the people that, um, that classify and the people that don't basically make it into this military role at this point in time. Um, so the people who are infra-classem are like out of that. Um, they, they don't have that kind of a role in society and that might be something to do with the power dynamics we're seeing with patricians versus plebeians maybe being something to do with that distinction as well in terms of those who serve the state and those who don't serve the state. In, in that sense, obviously. The that, complexities of it all. I know, I know. So there, there are a lot of questions here. But once again, we have to highlight that obviously with those statues being erected to the ambassadors, there is this archaeological potentially evidence. And also, as you pointed out, the, uh, the Spolia Opima that's won by Cossus that also would be something that presumably there'd be some you know traces of by the time you get oh you know, yeah, it, it, yeah. Get, it gets caught up and it gets connected to other things and certainly um augustus for instance is very interested in mm. the spoiler opima that is in that temple yeah. and trying to date it precisely so there is a sense in which this is really important to a roman sense of their understanding of their history yeah and so cossus can't just fall out of the narrative he has to be somewhere and he has to do this thing at some point and mm. it's just a matter of where it comes up and how it unfolds yeah and then and of course, there is the golden crown that Livy mentions was dedicated by the dictator in the Capitoline Temple to commemorate this victory over Fidene. So there's that again. So there are these pieces of actual physical evidence that might be tying things together. And I am interestingly just going to note something about those ambassadors, Dr. G. Oh, do. Yeah, there is a bit of questioning around the names of these ambassadors. Oh. So we do have a couple of different versions because um, being a statue, it's something that crops up in a couple of different accounts. So typically Pliny the Elder and his natural history, you know, with all the He loves facts, this kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> random facts that he, he records, but also Cicero mentions the names as well. We do have these slight differences in their names, but... Cloelius and Nautius, we are pretty sure that they are patricians. However, the others, the one I said, rocked. (laughs) Rossius. Yeah, exactly. There are questions uh, about him and Fulcinius about their patrician status. Mm. Okay, that potentially, again, as we've talked about before, it's not a precise science, but given the ways that the names are used later on, it seems that we only really know plebeian people with those sorts of names. 
Interesting. I know. So once again, it kind of raises the question of, does that mean that this is just a patrician branch that's died out, you know, or some sort of other confusion like that? Or is it the case that you didn't actually have to be patrician to be in the Senate? Mm. Or Mm. do you not draw your ambassadors from the Senate? Uh, Can they be drawn from elsewhere? I think from memory they were mentioned as being Mm. from the Senate, but I will double check. It would be very interesting for there to be any plebeians in the Senate at this point. It would. That's that's part of the reason why I asked the question. No, look, it, it is obviously one of those things where it's like, what? But as we've talked about before, academics have sort of raised questions about, look, we know for sure that there are certain religious positions and political magistracies which plebeians don't seem to be able to hold at this point in time, certainly. But the Senate is one of those things that's not often specifically targeted by plebeians as being, we want to be in the Senate. We want to be in the Senate. Which might suggest they're already there in some capacity. Potentially. But Mm. yeah, obviously it's all very circumstantial. It's kind of looking at the absence of evidence in some ways rather than actual concrete evidence. Ah, the realm of ancient historians. (laughs) We love a good absence of evidence. (laughs) But anyway, I think that's probably a good point to wrap up for 37. Mm-hmm. A lot of confusion, and certainly you will be hearing mention of these people again because the whole situation with Fidene is not resolved. Yeah, <laughs> it might keep coming up, and yeah. uh, we might see Cossus do his thing again in 426. <laughs> the sequel. Cossus the sequel. Lars Tolumnius rises from the dead only to be re-killed by the same man who killed him the first time. I'm going to spoil that opima all over again. <laughs> Jupiter Ferratridus, listen to my plea. <laughs> all right, Dr. G, that means that it is once again time for the partial pick. All right, so Dr. G, this is the chance for the Romans to pick up a total of 50 golden eagles. We've got five categories and 10 eagles in each up for grabs. Well, well, well. The first category to consider is military clout. Well, I mean, this is definitely... I mean, can you not give it... We have I, to give I, a 10 I, out of 10. I feel like it... Yeah, it has yeah. to be 10. I mean, as far as what Livy's concerned, what Fidene is destroyed right now... Well, I mean, he he says there's a lot of massacres and stuff, but he does hint that, you know, some people escaped into the mountains. Oh, okay. But certainly it's been a decisive Roman victory. And I mean, to be honest, just because of Cossus alone and the <laughs> fact that they allegedly killed the Etruscan king, who yeah. seems to have been pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we have to give it to the very handsome Cossus, I think. Yeah, I mean, look, we might have to give him ten eagles again in a few episodes, <laughs> but I at the moment... Just for the sake of clarity, I think we have to say, look, we're going to agree with our sources, even though there's some confusion. Look, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if we disagree with the sources, as yeah. far as the sources are concerned, there was a great victory in this year. Yeah. And it's over Fidene, and the Romans showed excellent military clout, so that's ten eagles right there. Exactly. Mm. Okay, so... The next category is diplomacy. Well, is war the greatest form of diplomacy you've ever seen? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> well, I in think, that case, it's a zero. <laughs> I think we have to assume that diplomacy is broken down if there is a conflict going on. Oh. Yeah. Not that I actually blame the Romans for that this time around. Okay, so no no score. I don't think so. No. Okay. Well, expansion. Well, kind of. I mean, they've kind of reasserted themselves over Fidene. 
but it was already theirs. So well, but Fidene was lost, and we did give them a minor score for losing Fidene in the last Shall episode. Shall we give them a point back? <laughs> yeah. So one point for regain. It's not really an expansion. It's just regaining what's theirs as yeah. far as they're concerned. Okay. So one point for that. Done. All right. Done. Wirtus. Oh, well, oh okay. look. Cossus. 20 gold eagles right there. <laughs> knocking it out of the ballpark. Nobody's seen anything like this since Romulus. Exactly. On top of which, you've got all the other guys. You know, you've got Fabius. You've got Capitolinus. You've got Mamercus. Everyone's doing a great showing. Yeah. So Wirtus all around. I think it's probably got to be another a ten. 10 out of 10. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. These Romans. Yeah. Boy. Put them in war and all of a sudden they're doing great. They shine. Mm. What would it be like to be a citizen in Rome right now? Well, I mean, okay. We might be a bit suspicious sometimes when we don't hear a lot from the citizens about how they're actually feeling. However, my account does say that they were, you know, happy to jump on board this time around because they recognized that ambassadors had been murdered and that the Etruscans were being a problem. So... (laughs) It's bad news, guys. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously the fact that they secured a victory, even though Rome, some of Rome's citizens, plebeians, might occasionally have a problem with some of Rome's other citizens, patricians, at the same time, I think they do share certain values. I think they'd still be pleased by this turn of events. Hmm. Yeah. All right, so about a five... Yeah, I think so. I mean, they apparently, uh, you know, saying, dedicate the crown. The dictator's like, no problem. So, (laughs) and they agreed that these men deserved a triumph. So, yeah. Got on board with the party. Dr. G, hold on to your toga. (laughs) (laughs) Mathematics. Yeah. This means that Rome has scored 26 Golden Eagles. Oh, We're a pass. A pass. <laughs> they've got over 50% for the first time in. I actually don't know that they've ever scored a this A long time. time. <laughs> a long time. Wow. Wow, Rome. Okay. Yeah. Well, it just goes to show all you have to do is single handedly defeat the great and glorious commander of your opponents in battle and steal all his stuff. And hoo boy! Yeah. Yeah. Really dramatically changes the situation. Rome's back in the saddle. It really is. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how they're going to follow this one up. (laughs) Probably with a terrible score. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you have to again wonder. I'm just going to finish off on this note, Dr. G. We have often noted that when Rome goes through a bad period, miraculously, there's this amazing military campaign or something like that that happens just afterwards, which makes you forget about all the horrible stuff that happened when they, you know, murdered an equestrian who was providing grain for everyone. So part of me does have to wonder, are they potentially also moving things up a little bit in the timeline because Rome's just been through such a tough period? (laughs) Well, why put a damper on this parade? (laughs) Stay tuned as we find out whether these uh, narratives are directly paralleled in 10 years' time. Indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. We are especially grateful for the support provided by our Patreons. And today we'd like to give a special shout out to Sharon, Robin, and Dr. G's favorite, Debus Augustus, who have been showing a lot of interest on our Patreon posts recently. You too can support our show and help us to produce more fabulous content about the ancient world by becoming a Patreon. 
In return, you receive exclusive early access to our special episodes, as well as the occasional bonus episode, and you now get to see us in action in some of our recording sessions. However, there are other ways that you can support our show. We know that a monthly membership isn't for everyone, and therefore we now have a Ko-Fi account. So you can head on over there and buy us a cup of coffee whenever you feel the urge. However, one of the biggest things you can do to support the show is just to spread the word and leave us with some five-star reviews. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome. <laughs>